Hello and welcome back to the Giant Pod. This is the first episode of season three. I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's watched and streamed the Giant Pod season one and two in the break while we've been away working on this one. It really does mean a lot to us. My guest this week is David Abram. He is an ex-travel writer, an ex-Radio 1 host. We talk about the travel industry. We talk about the travel media. We talk about my aspirations for hosting a travel documentary one day. We talk about being J with work we talk about selling out in a way we talk about integrity we talk about his new project which is prehistoric british monuments uh which he takes photos of via drone at dawn and we talk about a whole host of other interesting things uh i really enjoyed this conversation i think david had a really good time as well so yeah without further ado here it is this is the first episode of season three welcome back it's good to be back here it is I used to be a, a, a presenter on Radio One's travel show, and yeah. they used to send me off to random European cities for a weekend of revelry. Right. And I used to schlep around town trying to make friends with people yeah. with a microphone and record interviews with them, you know, conveying what a wonderful time. Yeah, exactly. Vox Pops. And I'd go to nightclubs and have little adventures. Right. And I had a great adventure in Seville one weekend, and they were all very excited about about the possibilities. And I got the thing back, I got a frantic phone call on Wednesday, the following Wednesday, saying the whole thing was completely dead because I hadn't switched a button on or I had switched a button on that I shouldn't have done. And 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 could I come down from Inverness where I was and re-record it? I couldn't. Right. So they had to all fake it in the in the in the office. So I shouldn't be saying this, should I? They they faked it on Radio One. An entire <laughs> an entire inset where they just got the girls in the office to do the Vox Box putting on Spanish accents and the bl- <laughs> And the producer pretended to be me, getting all excited about, you know, what a fun time I was having. Uh, I mean, they just got loads of flamenco sound effects and whatnot and just bodged it all together. And that was the end of my radio career. So did they fire you after that? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. Was it was it like an unceremonious sacking? Or was yeah. It... No, just like the phone didn't ring. And then I got in touch. <laughs> Where am I going next? And then I got a sort of <sighs> polite politely informed that there wouldn't be any more. That's a bit unfair. I mean, I'd never had any training with this thing. In those days, they were quite big tape recorders. Right. And um, there was a little sort of mute button on the side, quite inconspicuous. And I'd either nudge, I think I nudged it, you know, yeah. to on and, and nothing came out. Of course, I hadn't monitored my audio, as you're not doing now with no. headphones. I'm being very naughty. So, um, yeah. So I've been very worried since then. No, I didn't do any more. I did a bit of radio, but nothing more for them. That was great. I had such a good time, you know, because you could, go anywhere having a microphone with a beep you know in those bbc things yeah yeah oh it gives you some power right some well power. it would open doors i mean it got me into nightclubs i wouldn't have got into otherwise and what kind of nightclubs wouldn't you have got into <laughs> why is that any because i know in berlin there's that place called Berghain or whatever it's called and they've got a very notorious bouncer there who's probably <laughs> almost as famous as the club i think I, and I, if he thinks you're not cool you don't get in well i wasn't cool by any means I'm not now, and I certainly wasn't then anymore then. And I was on my own as well, a sort of burly Welsh bloke on his own pitching up at the, in the small hours. I mean, you know, you're not going to get let in. But I, so I, so I, I, I devised this tactic of, in a sort of the limbering up phase, as it were, in the sort of piazza, or I try and make as many friends in commas as possible with my BBC microphone, and then I'd yeah. go in in a group, and it would look, I'd look, you know, 
but just wave the microphone around and yeah, it would. It might open all sorts of doors. You get, you know, I just ended up speeding down motorways to the middle of nowhere. I didn't know where I was going off the time, what was going on, but I recorded it all and then I used to make these programs from it that's made it sound like I'd had a wild old time. That sounds like quite a good job. How did you land in that? Well, I say landing because I imagine it was <laughs> my, like most of these things, they were kind of a happy accident. Well, Andy, that's exactly right. It was a happy accident. I was writing guidebooks at the time for Rough Guides back in the 90s and late 80s, no, early 90s. And I'd done one on India and back when no one else had done. And so every time anything about India or tourism India came on the radio or television, I'd get a buzz uh, requesting me to come and talk about it. And a lot of opportunities arose from that, including this radio thing. I never said no to anything. I had a policy of never saying no to anything. This is kind of continuing to this day, which is why I'm here now, talking to the bloke from the co-op. <laughs> I just nipped in there to get a tin of beans. And next to now, I've been roped into doing this. But I have a rule never to say no, which is yeah. probably why I was running out the door at the time that you uh, started speaking to me. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I have a, a, bit, a bit of a talent for sniffing out people that do like interesting things right i just get a sense of it yeah so it was going so i think oh bleep frozen peas bleep beans um are oh, you right today mate bleep yeah i'm fine i think no it's the chatty tall guy bleep from the car bleep down goes the pizza and he goes what do you think about the situation in the middle east and then the bleeping stopped and of course you know you had me at what and middle east it was a clincher so there i am 10 minutes later talking about afghanistan <laughs> And next thing I know, I'm here in the town hall. Yeah. The wondrous, are. sumptuous confines of the town hall. So that's kind of how I got that radio job. And like a lot of things back then, you know, um, you, if, if you can talk fluently and you've got a little bit of a profile, also, you know, all sorts of great things can happen. In those days, it was a lot easier. You didn't, you didn't have to go through sort of elaborate training. Well, probably would have helped if I had. But right. yeah, I just went, I spent, you know, the year, every month I'd go somewhere else. It was great. But it wasn't, and I did a similar thing in TV. I worked for the Sky Travel Channel for a while. But, you know, none of these things suited me because they were all very much skating over the surface of things. Having right. a good time, inverted commas, when you probably weren't. It just okay. felt like rubbish, really. And, I, and I, 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 I'm much happier doing, going in more depth into places. Like, I'm a bit of a sort of, bit of a bookworm. And, I, and I'm much happier researching about places and going back to the same ones time and again. And this is what I used to do with my guidebooks. Right. Did you, did you find that the, the stuff they were asking you to do on Sky and whatnot was almost like a television equivalent of like a glossy brochure? That's exactly what it was like. Right. It, they, they, they basically were just trying to give people ideas for things to do on cheeky weekends or the city breaks. And I never went on cheeky weekends or city breaks. Uh, it never interests me. It was, it was a sort of contortion, really. I just having to squash myself in an odd shape. And I spent most of my life doing that mm. and to, to a degree. And I've always found the most fulfilling jobs are the ones where you have to squash yourself the least as it were where you you're more you're more sort of consistent or authentic with what with what with what you like and um but it's, yeah as we was discussing just now before we came on air it's actually really hard to find anything in life that allows you to be who you are and do what you want to do isn't it and yes. to earn a bit of money to sustain you which has always been my struggle really yeah i i feel feel like this is what i'm i've been trying to do my whole life because very young age i think it's like three years old diagnosed with adhd and i don't, probably don't have the most severe adhd but i've probably but i've definitely got it mm. and i just knew there was like i remember a moment in class when the teacher was like 
So we're going to figure out what you want to be, you know, and obviously you're in year one or something. You, no one's going to actually be what they said they're going to be. Uh, or I'm, I'd be very surprised if someone who said they wanted to be a vet is a vet now. So, and all the kids were like, oh, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to be that, I'm going to be that. And it was all quite sensible. And, and what did you say? Realistic. I was like, I had a whole list. Oh, really? Like, I was what? like, I'm going to be an actor. Actor. Uh, and if I'm not an actor, I'm going to be a wrestler. <laughs> had I known I was going to be six foot nine. What, were you already nine? six foot nine then? No, no. you were <laughs> No, I was only six foot. Were you the teenager? <laughs> qu- only, were you six foot when everyone else was four foot? Back uh, yeah, I mean, like, there was a period where I was like the tall. I was always the tallest in school. Always. Always. But you were the tallest baby in the crash, and it all, probably yeah, right back when. Probably, okay. and then there, then there was like a moment where I, you know, felt like maybe I'd stop growing. It like six five, and then just went straight up to like six nine or whatever. Um, so if I'd known then that I was going to be this big now, I would have like pursued wrestling because I loved it as a kid. And if if your teacher had been told that you were going to be the mayor of Froome one day, would they have? Uh, how they reacted to it? they would have laughed so. uh, maybe although <laughs> I do remember I do remember some years later with this particular teacher sharing a, a, a an exotic know, cigarette <laughs> a moment behind the bike sharing, Just what? A, sharing a moment shock me a moment talking about Led Zeppelin sharing a moment ah. while, while he enjoyed an exotic cigarette and I think at some point I, I threw up in his rose bush Golly, that is an admission. Something like that. So, but yeah, so the t- so who are these people to judge? <laughs> it's all I fucking well. say. Um, I won't, I was going to shout him out then. I'm just not going to Thank do God it. you didn't, because yeah. the poor guy might try and hold on to his job or something. He <laughs> would find that less easy if you... He's actually, I've actually had, I've had um, conversations with him since. He's actually a fellow ADHD. I've always thought there's something wrong with most teachers. <laughs> <laughs> they were at my school. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, uh, I had a few good ones. I had I had a few that I didn't like, but but yeah. So it's very very interesting. So I always knew. I always kind of had this feeling like I'm a square. Was it a square peg in a round hole? And uh, I'm not going to be able to fit into society, like because I always felt a bit different. I always felt like I don't really fit into this world quite the way that everyone else seems to like out there and that so the world of punk rock beckoned is that where you yeah i just felt like whatever i needed to do it needed to be something that came from me Hmm. it needed to be something that came from within and not something that's like pushing a pen or Hmm. in an office or something kind of a bit straight like that i guess but unfortunately they're not often the things that pay the rent they're not as i found yeah what with punk rock with punk rock but the thing is if if it's, it's a strange one. The experience, if you count the experience from being in sick ones, I'm a millionaire. But f- fiscally, financially, had made no money from it. But mm. but the experience and everything is just I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to trade it for anything. Can't buy it. Dreams came true. That's it. So it was lovely. But yeah, no, I definitely feel like it's kind of what we're doing here as well. As I just always known that whatever I'm doing in life. It needs to be off off my own back, and mm. it needs, like you said, real, authentic. Yeah, it needs to be you. It needs to be. Like, I always felt that my career, or whatever I'm doing in life, has to be part of who I am. Who I am has to be part of. Rarely the case, isn't it? So rarely yeah. the case. But yeah, often you you sacrifice financial security for that. It's, it's definite trade off, mm. and and you know one has huge admiration for people that have managed to make a great success financially, not just financially, but but. To, to be able to build a life you know on doing what they really really enjoy it is the dream isn't it and and it's i guess i oh right from the get-go you know from the time i left school i always thought 
that at the very least I should be able to achieve that. Mm. And I did. I had a flying start. I managed to do that very well for the first sort of period of my adulthood, but it kind of bit the dust when children came along, but we might get to that point later because, of course, that's the great leveller. <laughs> and a lot of the things that you might have done that were really fulfilling and interesting and turned a little penny, you probably can't when you've got kids. You know, you're suddenly confronted with mundane realities. And since then, you know, it's been very, very difficult to 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 sustain travel writing as a career any sort of travel with anything really but um i kind of i kind of did but hey hey because the nature of it is that you're away a lot isn't it and and that's like yeah Yeah. well to start with i was because my first so i should explain that i tried i was thinking of getting a career an academic career as an anthropologist because i was really into the books of someone called bruce jatwin when i was a kid I remember reading his stuff and uh, and all the books I read at university. I just thought, oh, it's got to be. I've got to be a writer or something. And these books by this man, they seem to be so erudite and so inspiring in in the way that they kind of synthesise disparate facts and travel experiences into something sort of coherent. I thought that's what I want to do. I, I really didn't think too hard about how I was going to do it, but I went into this academic career as a sort of first step. And once I'd realised that wasn't going to be for me. My girlfriend saw an advert in The Guardian for back back in the day they wanted someone to write The Rough Guide to India. Right. And to cut a long story short, that's what I did. And it was a nightmare. The, the entire interview consisted of them trying to talk me out of getting the job because they felt that their, you know, their integrity depended on them trying to get me not to do it because it was such a turkey of a thing. They said to me, you know you're not going to make any money you get, it's a long cut to a nervous breakdown. You'll be a you'll be a basket case by the end of it, and you'll have no money and no friends, and you wonder why the hell you did it. And that all turned out to be absolutely true. And why did they say this to you? Because uh, because the books were produced on a shoestring right. by their nature, and so the, the the advances were minimal. I mean, I was paid about five thousand pounds in advance, and I had to work for nearly two years, and I literally didn't have any money. I was just living on. It was ridiculous how, how broke I was. Right. But I was young and just managed to live cheaply. I think that was six months of travel involved in that book. And then I worked for 18 months writing the book. And it did. It did. I mean, I was reduced to an exhausted, gibbering heat with the end of it. Right. The whole thing with so much pressure. But having done it, it opened lots of doors, you know. Right. I wrote other books that were more lucrative, much easier to do. Um, regional books on India. Then I went on to write books about other countries in the world. And it it added up to something like, a career yeah certainly kept me busy and it just paid my rent but it wasn't enough it wasn't really enough to 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 to, to for, for a comfortable standard of living so I started doing other things I started taking photographs and I became a bit of a photographer and um uh and then I tried to get a proper job using my skill set in journalism mm. and that worked for a while and we had the financial crisis and all that so unraveled like 2008 yeah, 2009, it completely, I was at a really nice job. That, that, so having done, you know, 15 odd years of writing guidebooks, I had about 20 books that right. I'd done. I started, um, I worked for a charity called The Ramblers that, that, that promote walking in Britain. And they got me to do uh, a book that they were going to hand out every year to the, their entire membership of 120,000 people. Right. And the book was a selection of walks. Right. Uh, and I would write a sort of four-page piece on each of the the, the routes and, and what was of interest along them. Sounds a bit dull, but it was it probably was really really dull actually to read. But my God, it was amazing fun to put it together. Research. Right. God, yeah, I went all over Britain on expenses doing these amazing walks, and that's kind of when I fell back in love with uh, with Britain. So um, 
yeah, and that, that unraveled. So I went back into guidebook writing again. It's by this time it was really difficult. You know, the digital revolution happened and book sales were plummeting. My royalty checks were diminishing every time. So I was always on the lookout for something else to do. And that's how I ended up drifting into so at that point, I was still doing things that I really, really loved. I was still exploring. I was still writing about places I, you know, didn't know very well and was getting to know through the research and the writing. And I found it really inspiring. It really sort of fulfilled me. Didn't pay much money, but that was okay. Then the drift started as I started, you know, after I, after I had kids and I had a mortgage and I had to start thinking a bit more seriously, I started working more and more for the, in the travel sector for companies that were sending people off to on, on these sort of high-end package holidays. And that's where the, that was a thin end of a very unpleasant uh, wedge where, where my working life kind of degenerated. And I started, in, instead of being authentic, it became really inauthentic. It became marketing rather than reportage. Right. And I got really miserable. Did that f- until, until quite recently. I did it. It's lucrative. Never right. earned so much money, but I was starting to go mad. Having to write... Um, puff pieces and um, what's a puff piece? Well, just sort of, just sort of, just space filling thing, really. That's full of cliches. And you know, instead of going out somewhere, finding something out that someone needs to know, and writing it up honestly, I was having to exaggerate, falsify, you know, and 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 downplay the downsides and really accentuate the positive. Mm. Marketing, really. Yeah. And I think that I think the worst point came when we got this young marketing manager in, who started. Uh, getting me to write pieces based on keyword volumes and search terms, oh. right? She gave me this list of things. So I think the worst came last year in the in the height of lockdown. What's a keyword volume? Is this stuff that people searching for online? Yeah, and- so it's a phrase that people have used a lot for search to, for things. So in the past, right. where I'd write a book of over a thousand pages or contribute to books that were you, you know that involved going away for months on end. Yeah. By the end of my travel writing career because we skipped all the bit in the middle. Yeah. By the end of my travel writing career, I was writing ridiculous, pointless pieces right. of, 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 of shoddy journalism based more on, you know, what I'd, uh, the second-hand, third-hand accounts that I'd found on Google and cobbled together than anything real and meaningful, purely to attract traffic to that website. So th- the last article I ever did for that company before they sacked me in lockdown, because they, you know, the whole f- I wasn't on furlough as a freelancer, was uh, a piece on um, where to party New Year 2021. <laughs> I mean, nobody was, oh, 2020, nobody was going to be partying. Mm. And I was saying, look, what's wrong with you? No one's going to be going out to Singapore to celebrate New Year this year. Mm. And they're going, she was going, oh, yeah, but that was a really popular search term last year. And I was yeah. saying, yeah, well, it won't be this year, will it? They're not searching for it this year. No. So they're not going to fucking find the article. It was a complete waste of time. So... I, I think at that point, I really did start to lose the will to live. And I think that's where we parted company. So to be to be slightly pretentious, possibly, I don't know how seriously you take your, yourself as a writer. Not very seriously. Did you feel that when you were doing this, as you said, shoddy journalism, yeah. did you feel like you were sort of hemorrhaging integrity? <laughs> hemorrhaging integrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one way of putting it. Like I know sort of I did. Selling out. I completely, completely. Yeah, I, I totally had. And it, to, it makes me sound kind of pompous to say that it affected me, uh, because at the end of the day, it was still a really cushy job. Like, yeah, it was. But it's an art form that you care about, isn't it? It, it? There was something more, more profound than that. It was more than even it being a sort of ethical matter. There was something really unsustaining about it. When when you've been somewhere real and you've mm. had real experiences that you're drawing on 
to inform your writing. Mm. And that uh, uh, the writing has a lot more credibility, but it also is more helpful, is more interesting. And crucially, when you're communing with all that stuff, all those memories in order to write it, you're getting some sort of sense of light, some sort of space. You're, you're, you're sort of back there again, and that's what sustains you. When you start writing about places like I was having to do that you've never been to... It's 2D. Oh, God. It's just yeah. crushing. And, and, and that process, that pendulum swing from one extreme, like literally getting on an aeroplane via Afghanistan in the 80s or wherever it was, out to obscure countries in Asia trogging around on a shoestring, coming back with literally folders full of, of notes and bits of paper that I had to sift through and extract the information from and put into a book form. Yeah, That kind of old school analogue thing had loads of integrity. It was genuinely useful. It made lots of money. It was great fun. It, it, it fulfilled me. And then scroll forward 25 years, digital revolution, and then we're all just shuffling around words. Mm. And hardly anyone anymore is paid enough to actually justify them going places so fewer and fewer people before covid were really getting on planes and the other big change in travel writing is that travel editors of newspapers these days for example have to hang everything they commission on posh hotels right which is all well and good if you're one of the sort of tiny percentile of people that can afford 400 quid a night to go to crete on holiday for example in august but if like us you're not then you know there's not a lot of point to it. And, and I'm certainly not one of those people that could afford that. So I was getting more and more disillusioned with it. So lockdown was a bit of a godsend, really. And everyone, every aspiring writer has a thing where they say they've met, met someone that they admired and they gave them some sage words. Yeah. And those sage words are often write what you know, aren't they? Yeah, that's true, um, yeah. And you can't write what you know if you think they'll fucking send you that. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's true, you know. But, but look, you know, it's the economics of it. So... When we started writing Rough Guides, well, no, I wasn't even around at the beginning. When it started in the 80s, it was an even more basic thing. You know, they were literally hitchhiking around Greece to start with. I came along a little bit later, but it was still a basic principle, very honest honest way of earning a living and truthful. And it's all about representing things as truthfully as possible, telling things like they were. You take that cog out of the machine yeah. and, and the whole thing starts to become very, very difficult. Um, and, and, of course, it's a long way from what got me into it in the first place, so... It sounds a bit like that that Jack Kerouac book where he's going across America, and it's that book about I think that's his name going across America, and the things that he the, the experiences he encounters, the characters along the way. There's a romance to that sort of thing, isn't there? And I think that that's kind of why I wanted to tour and stuff ah, because you have those, yeah. that that wealth of characters and experiences. Yeah, and and what you were doing back in the day has that kind of there's a I think I feel there's a romance to it. Well, I, I, you know, to be fair, it wasn't, it wasn't travel like I'd been doing before. I was traveling professionally. The, the nature of it was different. It was much more enjoyable actually to have a purpose to every day, right. to have a long list of things you had to get around because it would force you to do things you probably wouldn't have ever done any other otherwise. Yeah, and that's all sort of enriching. But having said that, I look back now. And yeah, when I'm, I find myself feeling a sense that was, so there was a sense of romance about it, write, writing stuff that had never been written, mm. um, writing about places that never featured in any books, and going back to them over the years, year after year, by which time you'd, you'd have made friends locally, you, you, you would watch people's families grow up, you got to know the country much more deeply. There was a real romance about that. And you know what? I can't see any 
way, any, 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 any vocation in the modern world that's an equivalent of that now. I mean, I can't imagine any project that, that would be viable that would allow people to go back, you know, every two years. We were going every two years to go back to the same places and to travel more deeply and, you know. So you might not have been an expert when you started the book. You certainly were when you finished it. And then by the time you'd done four, five, six editions... You knew more about those countries than anybody, probably. And there was that period when those books were authoritative. But that's, that's, that's the era of them. People are my age, and you know, I'm, in, I'm in my mid-50s. We all remember travelling with these books, and we look back fondly because they were our like, little Bibles. They, we, we all, we all, we've all got them on our bookshelves at home, you know, to remind us of these great trips we had in Ethiopia or India or wherever it was. Now, that's all gone, you know. Lonely Planet books are sort of almost disposable if people bother with them at all. And... It, 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 there is a sort of romance to me now, looking back at it, that, that for a bygone era almost. I mean, it sounds like an old man, but it does feel that way. It, do you feel? Do you feel sort of sad for your kids that things aren't how they used to be, and that that's that's a thing that they could probably not experience now? Or are they off doing other things? That, that really is a really, a really, really good question, Andy. That is, a, I know people say that, but it is a really good question because. It's something that preoccupies me much more than you could imagine. Right. Um, the, the way that the, the way the world has changed, and it's not that I think it was better back then, but I, you know, it's it's really really changed, and I'm constantly trying to find ways of encouraging my children to engage the world that, that are going to yield comparable experiences. Right. So in my day, it was sufficient to get on a plane. Like, you know, we, we met in the co-op talking about Afghanistan. I happened to mention to you that, you know, you asked me what I thought of the situation. And I said to you, I've been there twice. And the first time I did it, I got on a plane in Heathrow, a Czech Airways flight, Delhi, right. thinking it was going to land in Delhi the next day. How wrong I was. Where's Delhi? Uh, India. Delhi's the capital of India, yeah. So the first, you know, first stop was in Moscow. Then it went to Kabul and then it didn't go any further. Oh. And we were taken out of the airport for 24 hours and put on a flight from... And this was all sanctions busting. We didn't know... So that sort of stuff doesn't happen these what days. sanctions busting? Well, because there were sanctions. It was during the Russian occupation of Afghanistan. So right. the, uh, the, the national carrier of Afghanistan, Ariana Airways, was, uh, was sanctioned. They weren't allowed to fly in and out of Heathrow. So they got around the sanctions by teaming up with another Eastern European... This was before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. The Eastern European airline, Czech, Czechoslovakia, as it was then... Uh, was part of that, was behind what they called the Iron Curtain. Yeah. They could fly to Heathrow, uh, and they teamed up with the Afghan Airways, and that's how Afghan Airways got around it. But we didn't know that, that we had a through ticket. That sort of stuff. I mean, I got to have a look at Afghanistan during the war, and and the whole experience of travelling back in the 80s was, was, was super analogue. You know, like, um, I often tell people about... It's, it's impossible to imagine how, how far away and out of touch with everyone you became. I mean... They didn't even have phones in India back in the 80s. You, you couldn't just go to a, a phone booth and call home. You had to, there was only about four cities in India where you could go to a telephone exchange and book a foreign call. To book it. You'd have to wait for hours and hours. Right. And if the phone was engaged, because we didn't have message machines back then, that's it, right. you went to the back of the queue. So we didn't bother. You know what they used to do instead? Right. Uh, was this thing called post restaurant where you write to, to a person, you put care of post restaurant and the name of the city that they're likely to be at. Yeah. So I'd arrive in a city in India and I'd go to the post office and pick up a little pile of mail that had been written three months ago. And that was it. That was the sole communication that we had with our friends and family for, for, for months. Sounds like effort. 
it was an effort. It I was probably wouldn't even bother. I'd just do my thing. <laughs> but, but, the, but the funny, the, the really weird thing was about it is that you felt so cut off from them, and that was the crucial thing. You were you, in a way that is unimaginable for people today who've got FaceTime in their pockets, mm. and that's the big thing that's changed. So going back to the original question, I'm trying to find ways that my kids can get that sense of excitement and discovery trying to help them and it's it's all about getting it's all really about getting into nature because it's only when you leave the roads and you leave cities and dead that you get that sense of exposure and isolation it's only really being in the wilds that that's still applicable where you run out of signal or something so so that's what my life's morphed into now i'm i'm trying to find new ways of exploring the world that are more um local that don't involve getting on airplanes and which give me that sense of uh excitement and discovery that I got from from getting on airplanes years and years ago because yeah. because me now I, I the last 10 years I've been getting on and off planes until quite recently with horrible regularity and really not feeling like I'd ever left home particularly I mean going to India became just like it was an extension of this country I didn't feel like I was going into a TARDIS like I did in the 80s and getting off in some exotic foreign land it didn't so it lost its shine a little yeah so so all that's sort of gone, and I don't think I ever will travel again very much. There's an element of self-sufficiency, isn't there, that, that comes from that style of travel. You develop it. Where, you know, and people go, people joke, don't they, about people going to India to find themselves and stuff like that. And I guess it, there's because there's a, a cliche, sort of psychedelic, Beatles-esque sort of... Yeah, there is with India, yeah. But there's something to be said for it, isn't there? Because, you, you know, you, if you go, if you've been living with your parents and you're 18 years old yeah. and you go out into the world and there's no phones... Yeah. You, who have you got? You. Yeah. And, and something has to, you have, something has to come from within you. Yeah. If something goes wrong, you deal with it. I don't know if it, I was like that already or whether I became like that through those experiences. It's something I'll never be able to gauge for sure. I just know that as a kid, I was always quite adventurous. And I always wanted to see what was beyond the hill or down the valley. And I always did do right from a very young age. But for sure, those sort of young, you know, in my late teens, those experiences of being in Asia and cycling long distances and walking long distances, not having any money, having to really, really scrimp, scrimp and eke out what small amounts you'd been able to save yeah. in order to stay away a long time. They really did make an imprint on me. And I think without those experiences, I probably wouldn't ever have allowed myself to get into the sort of kind of messed up state I am at the moment where I'm, you know, trying to make a living from, from art and and photography doing something that's never been done before not because i think it's necessarily going to be really successful more out of some sort of inner compulsion and this belief that i mean you know, being able to do that not 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 getting over anxious about being stuck on my own somewhere that's exactly the same as being mm. six weeks walk into the himalayas knowing that if you get hepatitis it's just you and the witch doctor sort of thing <laughs> Wow. Which, which, well, you know, this is this is the way it is when you walk for weeks, which is what I've, you know, always most enjoyed about my travel experiences in Asia is the, the walks, the getting away from the world. Right. Walking into remote parts of the world where people live in really traditional ways. That's always been the main incentive for me. Fascinating. And were there, like you said, there were like books when you were a kid that inspired you. Were you inspired by any, any characters, in, you know, that were adventurers, Tintin or something yeah no I wasn't in my, my, I grew up in Wales we didn't have Tintin I think it was the only part of the world that Tintin not reached Damn. Uh, <laughs> I feel bad for you so so I didn't I didn't my, it totally wasn't in my family 
until the age of nine. And my dad came home one day. My dad, right, who just worked in the local steelworks, he was a bit of a ne'er-do-well. Um, got expelled at the age of 15 and just went through, went through the Air Force, got demobbed, got a series of crap jobs in South Wales. He came home one day and announced that he just landed this job as a sales manager for an American company in, in the Middle East. And we were basically, you know, zapped, transported away at very short notice to, to, to Kuwait as it, as it, as it transpired to so be. He just came home and announced that the family's moving to Kuwait. He didn't even ask my mother about it. He just came home and said, I've got this job, we're going. Oh, Can you imagine? No. My mother just, my mother didn't stop crying for about two years. I mean, she hated it. But... Did she have to wear a, a, a no, headdress? No, it wasn't quite as bad as that. But she had to wear a headscarf in the market and stuff. But no, I mean, it wasn't the sort of oppressive. It was, well, for me, it, I mean, yeah, yeah, it was oppressive. She felt, she felt very oppressed by it. She hated living out there and um, she didn't speak the language and she missed her family and she wasn't, and she was disempowered. You know, my dad had just made this decision on his own and it did for their marriage ultimately but for me my god it was like someone waving an incredible magic wand i absolutely loved it from the minute i woke up there the minute i pulled apart the curtains in the the uh what was it called the sheraton kuwait city i remember looking out the back of this thing over a sandy car park to a sort of desert going yeah. on into the distance and thinking and hearing the car horns and watching someone in a dish dasher with a gutra you know traditional alcohol walking past right and just being absolutely amazed. You woke by up it. in another world. Oh my god, that feeling of waking up in another world, yeah. like Doctor Who, yeah, or something. It was just totally maybe Doctor exciting. Who's the hero. Yeah, maybe that maybe was that. I don't Doctor know Who. what the archetype was. I, you know what? I don't think there was. I think more than anything else, looking back at my life, it was it was those experiences I had in the Middle East, properly exotic things like my dad, all these business associates that that had falcons for Christ's sake you know, and had horses and used right. to go out into the desert and stay in these tents, you know, drink whiskey and drum and then get up early next morning at sunrise and fly their falcons. And <laughs> Sounds like something I It was see. just, it was a dream, wasn't it? It was, right. a, and they had beach houses and, and, and I'd only just learned to swim, you know, I could float, I couldn't swim, you know, little boys, Welsh boys, not, you know. So I'm imagining Kuwait as most people probably imagine Kuwait as a sort of place of, of war and stuff. Yeah. Are we, are we, what, well before the, that. What is this? Because I know Iran in the 70s hosted Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack and it was the place to be. This was then. My dad was going to was going to Tehran a lot. This is all prior to the Iranian Revolution. Right. The Iranian Revolution, I think, must have happened in, what, 77, 78, something like that? Was that right, 79? It was before the revolution, before the Ayatollah, that era, before the Islamic Revolution. And... Kuwait wasn't a place of war, far from it. It was a place of enormous optimism and dynamism. I mean, they were building a city out of nothing. So it was it was like Dubai a little bit, was it? it was well, it was like... nowhere near that scale and it was nowhere near as modern. And it it, it was it was a huge... It sucked in refugees right. from all over the Middle East, people that were either stateless or, or poor. You know, there were a lot of Palestinians, there were a lot of Lebanese at the time. And they sort of, you know, it attracted bakers and construction workers and taxi drivers and, you know, anything that could be done to earn money that didn't involve owning land. So there was a, there was a, it was a boom town. And my dad was selling, what was it they were selling? Um, air conditioning. Right. It's a place to do it. Yeah, for a big multinational company. And, and expats had a good standard of living. So, and I, you know, I had a very bizarre school experience, you know, going to school in the local with the local Palestinian kids. But the whole thing marked me so much. And 
I, I, it, it didn't feel so at the time. It just, you know, you just eat what's put in front of you at that age, don't you, or not? But looking back now, I realised that it, it was that, that feeling that I got when I opened the curtain in that hotel and looked out across sand yeah. and odd light and seeing people wear it. just did something to me. It made me feel incredibly alive and excited. And all the subsequent experiences I had, travelling around with my dad, we used to go off to other places in, in the Gulf. I think it sowed the seeds for it. Right. And, and then... You know, when I when I got to the age where I could travel on my own, the first thing I did was go back there and then on to India. And the whole experience of traveling when you're 18, back in the 80s, it was so massive. I mean, the minute you get out of the airport in these countries, it was just like entering another dimension. Right. By the time I'd done six months of travel in, in Asia at the age of 18, 19, I was never the same again. You know, I was never going to be the same again. And I knew that whatever I did in my life had to have that in it. Yeah. I couldn't. So I tried to do a load, you know, load. I mean, I worked in a supermarket like you. I pushed trolleys for months. I did all sorts of stuff and picked fruit and around France. I did loads of sort of manual jobs. Uh, went through university, more manual jobs. Came out of university, did more difficult. Yeah. But I always knew that some, some, somehow, somehow, somewhere I had to get back to that which is why I ended up doing what I did, I think. Do you think you would... Have you recaptured that moment when you opened those curtains? Do you think you've chased that? Not consciously. No? Not consciously, but it's definitely what compelled me. I mean, I, I, I know, I know I had a... I, I just... I, I can remember, for example, working in a, in, a, in, a, in a furniture shop in Bath and coming out on my lunch break. You know, this hell, you must experience it, when the monotony of standing at a till or yeah, stacking I, shelves and I, I all that. I had that recently. Yeah. I, wanted, the, the, I think maybe it's the day after I spoke to you. Yeah. I had a bit of a... I thought I was off and I oh. wasn't and they called me in. Oh, God. And I'd been in and I'd gone home oh, and I had a bacon bite. Time stands still, doesn't it? And then I got back in there and I, my soul was oh. just decaying Ex all yeah. day. I just fucking hated it. terrible. I hated I, it. I, I remember that. I remember exactly, you know, that feeling. And I came out, came out of Habitat, as it was uh, back then, in Bond Street in Bath. And I looked up and saw these clouds above the city and they were like mountains. And I imagined they were the Himalayas. And I thought, I wonder how I'd feel if those were real mountains. And... It was such a massive feeling. I just uh, went back in and handed my notes in straight away. <laughs> and no one talked to me for the next four weeks. No, literally, literally nobody talked to me what, for four weeks my, while I worked out my notes. Right. That but, is because they knew that you were going to go and do something that didn't, that was leaving them behind. Well, I don't know what they thought I was going to do, but I mean, Most I, people I, get weird energy vampires. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's what, well, clearly it was weird. But you know, I, I, I'll never forget that experience of working full time in a shop and how, how demoralized I was by it until that turnaround point when I decided, no, I'm going to bite the bullet. And I did buy a ticket. And you know, this, this, all, this has all come about in a sort of ad hoc way, this, this story, but yeah. that's what led me on the plane in Afghanistan and in, in, in India. And um, I think... I was I was responding to this this feeling in me that 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 I'd got in Kuwait that I'd had in my life this this it was an, it was an abstract it it didn't have a form I just knew I wanted to go go to other places and I used to go to this little bookshop this is where books really start coming into it in my lunch hour and I'd sit there every day for half an hour leafing through books by people like Raghubia Singh, who was a photographer who used to photograph India mm. really beautifully, as it was back then, and very it looked, looked very different back then, and just dream of what it would be like to be, you know, in a place that looked like that. Yeah. And, and when I did subsequently go to places like that, it felt absolutely every bit 
as amazing as I thought it would. Ah. It really, really did. And of course, that, then that creates this sort of snowball thing in you when, when, you, when you want it. And I started being an anthropologist, which, which was amazing. Uh, you know, I was getting to travel deeply. That was the first time that instead of going somewhere and moving around or, or along a route, I started just being in one place for long periods of time. And I found that was the next step. That was another, the next revelation was that, oh, this, this is far more interesting. Trying to work out what makes a place tick through learning the language and through asking people questions and figuring it out. And then I, then I realized, oh, what's really interesting about travel is not looking at other landscapes, although that's lovely. It's, it's trying to get inside people's mindsets and understanding their culture and, and like learning their language and what makes them tick. Um, and so with the guidebooks that I used to write, really the most sustaining and inspiring part of it all was, was the studying and the learning and, and tying that in with your own experiences. That was so fulfilling because we used to have to write the history, you used to have to write about the literature, or the music, you used to have to write the monuments as well as where to eat and where to sleep and all that and drawing maps. It was, it was a lot to it. It was multi very, very multifaceted. And once, once you've done that, for years, because it, it, it did, it just turned into this never-ending merry-go-round of books. It becomes really difficult to contemplate anything else. A nine-to-five sort of job, and I think now, you know, I've reached this point in my life where I'd kind of reconcile to the fact that I never will, even though I bloody hell should get off my ass and find one. I really, I, I'm getting off my ass and doing everything I possibly can not to. <laughs> in a nutshell. I spoke to, well, I did a podcast with, uh, a few podcasts ago, it's in season two now, with um, Jeremy Wade. Uh-huh. Have you met Jeremy yet from the, the River Monsters TV show? Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I saw him and thought, isn't that the guy that holds the big fish on TV? Yeah. <laughs> He's, he must have a similar sort of story, how he got into earning. I mean, that, you know, you earn quite good money in TV and it can be enough to, yeah. to sustain you, can't it? In a... He started out as a journalist. Okay, about fishing. I think so, bits and bobs like that. But what we were talking about, because I've thought about this earlier, and we're going back a step here, but uh, I wanted to mention it. Is that I was talking to him about how travel used to be in terms of like now, you know, we'll land somewhere, we'll get Google up and we'll say, hey, yeah. Siri, um, <laughs> where should I eat tonight? <laughs> Jesus yeah? Christ. And Siri goes, mm, here are a list oh of my five God. restaurants it's, near you. It's crap, isn't it? And then you just go to some shit. Oh, God. Um, but what used to, I guess what used to I've never done any solo traveling, not like what you've been yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. I used to have to go out and eat in all those places and talk to travelers and yeah. I you know You'd get, have to find the place find them. The place the colloquial you know, what the what the locals Well you'd at, have to right? find a knowledgeable local. This was the trick. You'd have to find someone who knew what you needed to know and then they tell you and you go around. Like, you know, in the evening I typically go four or five places with somebody that I'd met or someone I'd met you know, that are written to me or whatever. And, uh, and, and it was, that was always a challenge. Yeah. But you know, you, it's quality control. You're actually doing it yourself. And, and, and you when you buy, when you buy a guide, but when you bought a guidebook in those days with the best of them, you were buying that someone, you were buying the benefit of someone's knowledge that had been out and done it. Not yeah. like, well, you're not, buying something that other, that, that hotels had paid into possibly. To well, be in? Uh, no, 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 oh. no, no. So is that a, is that a modern game? Absolutely when not. It's totally the opposite of that. This is what I'm saying, Andy. It was the complete opposite of that. It was up to you what went in the book, and you certainly wouldn't be swayed by someone offering you money. I mean, it did happen occasionally, but hotels didn't used to pay to be in the book. They right. would get in the book because because they were after two or three days going around Bhopal or somewhere or Ahmedabad or wherever it was, 
these were the places that I'd selected uh, that were the, represented the best deals in each of the categories, you know, going from five-star right down to sort of um, right. hostels or whatever. And um, no, I mean, you know, it was completely, what's the word? Honest, it was, it was honest work. Grassroots. <laughs> it was simple. And, and the idea now that your generation can... Ch- I remember the first time I saw a couple when I was in India. It was in sweaty Kerala one afternoon. It was absolutely sweltering hot. And this couple was standing, talking into their mobile phone, doing exactly what you've just described. Right. And I just wanted to say, what's wrong with you? You know, yeah, it's all in here. And <laughs> my book. Yeah. You know, uh, but yeah, your generation doesn't think the same way. It doesn't It doesn't sort of, you don't... Why would you spend 20 quid on a guidebook to go somewhere when you've got all that information or you think you've got all that information at your fingertips on your phone, I suppose? Yeah, it, it's it's a cru- uh, like a crutch, isn't it? It's um, Well, a guidebook's a crutch. It's the ultimate crutch, I suppose. But you've got to put some effort in with that, haven't you? To read a guidebook, you know, you've yeah. got to buy it. You've got to, yeah. and There's a certain amount of mental investment. Isn't Not there? much. I mean, if you pitched up in Froome... I mean, if I was going to do Froome, yeah. right, typically, this is the sort of town I typically spend 24 hours in, I'd find, a, I'd find a busy little pub that was sort of, and I'd go to some geezer like you, and I'd, chat, and I'd very quickly get a sense of whether, if, they, if they knew their onions, and they'd, they'd, you know, they'd tell me where was, what the good pubs were. Right. And in Froome, that would be what? The Three Swans, the Griffin, maybe the Weechie. You, you could cover them in, in, in half an hour, get a yeah. sense of what they were like. And you do the same with restaurants and, and you'd find, and you talk to people and you find out what, what distinguishes the town. So what would you pick out of room? You'd, you'd draw people's attention to the market on, you know, the, you'd, uh, the cheap street and the architecture and a few sort of interesting quirky things. Yeah. Job done. But I usually just could, send everyone to Raves, the record store. Raves, exactly. Just, like, just go there. <laughs> Get in it. Well, you know, I'd be interested to see what was in the Rough Guide to England about Froome, but... Well, it's all um, kinds of things now, isn't it? It's all hip and well, trendy. That's and... what defines it. But, but I don't think this... It's, to me, right, you still cannot... You cannot be a good guy, but a, 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 a book written by someone who either knows the place well and knows how to find out a place, really, knows how to go about it. Because a book... You know, it's a filtration process that goes on. And you don't want to know everything or anything. You want to know what you want to know. Yeah. And I don't honestly think the internet's necessarily an easy way to do that because it takes you to opinion that is often biased. So if you had a, you know, a Guardian article about this place, there'd be some sort of hidden agenda. Either it would be a hotel that's paying to be plugged or it would be, you know, whatever. It'd be a, there'd be a slant or a hook or an angle. Whereas we were just writing really... I think we all imagined that coming along behind us were, were busloads of people a bit like us that liked the same things we did and that would want to know what we want to know. So we go off and find it. And it's really simple. I still think there's a place in the world for these things. And it's just sad that because the margins on them are so small, they're so difficult to turn a profit from those even cheap books because they cost such a lot to do. Mm. They've started to, you know, you know that rough guys don't exist anymore really they well they sort of do but they're completely impoverished now they're not they're not actually they don't belong to the original owners and they're not updated like we used to update them not even lonely planet can afford you know the biggest guy but coming not even they send people out right you know as frequently more and more is done from back offices in asia and, and this kind of thing and it's sad because i think it's hard to replace a really knowledgeable person that goes back year after year yeah and charts the changes and so, so what I do, right, if I'm going to a new country these days that I haven't been to, I'll contact the old rough guide author. 
that you know specialise in that country, and I'll say, oh, Jim, so um, which was the best edition of Portugal that you ever did? And they'll say, oh, yeah, it was a 250-page one before they cut, you know, 80 pages out of it. <laughs> that, that one was really, really good. Uh, you Edition six. So I'd go and get edition six. We might be 15 years old. Yeah. And it would have loads of what I really wanted from a guidebook in it, which is all the information about, the, you know, the sort of evergreen information, right? What's evergreen information? Evergreen information is stuff that doesn't date. So, you know, the history, the culture, the background, all the stuff that's really hard to find out. Monuments and things. All that right. stuff. That's what I want a guidebook yeah. for. I don't want a guidebook to tell me where the best booze are in town. Is you can find those things for yourself. That sort of stuff you can find out from TripAdvisor really, really easily. But um, people don't perceive, unfortunately, people used to buy guidebooks with that kind of information in mind. So as soon as the internet came along and offered that information for free, even though there's no triage process involved in TripAdvisor, it's all commercial and therefore easy to, uh, to become biased, mm. people still perceive less value in the guidebook because they can get the same inf- what they think is the same information for free. And so guidebooks quickly became unviable. People stopped buying them as just hard numbers, so they weren't able to update them as frequently. And then the standard goes down, and sadly they're almost a bit of a sort of... I think their day has day has come and gone, really. That's 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 an interesting. There is a conversation there between value and meaning, isn't there? How do you mean? Well, the 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 value of them in the eyes of the public has diminished. The, the yeah, the perceived value. That's right. But the perceived value of them is diminished. Yeah, that's true. But there's meaning in there as well. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, you know, I travelled a lot in my life in my uh, younger days without guidebooks because there just weren't any to places like I went to like West Africa. I remember going around with my girlfriend one year. My God, that was an incredibly tough trip. We had no idea uh, any about any. We didn't know anything about anywhere. Right. Not not the practical level or the sort of cultural level. And then I remember coming back and six months later coming across the first rough guide to West Africa and reading about all the places we went to and thinking, oh my God, if we'd only known this, right. we'd have had a really good time. Yeah. And that's the difference. Back then, that made the difference between a sort of problematic and difficult trip and something that was a bit random and something that was probably, you know, much more sort of fulfilling and enjoyable. I have a bit of a, a thing about I would like to host a travel documentary or something. I don't what, know like, why. Like, like what? I don't know why. What, 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 would, it, what would the focus be? Well, I was going to... The, what I would have done would have probably been Parts Unknown, Anthony Bourdain. I don't know if you've seen that. I was going to ask you what your favourite... He's a chef, Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, yeah, but his show is... Oh, no, where, where's, it, where's that show? I it's on Netflix. Is it? It's fucking oh, incredible. Oh, I have seen, I have seen the it pop up. Why is it amazing? Because it's not just about food. He goes to these places, Parts Unknown, so he goes to places that aren't typically... Yeah. Um, touristy spots yeah he gets into the local food but he gives he gives um history culture and then and then he goes into a bit of the counterculture stuff so he doesn't meet with all the the people you'd expect him to meet he meets with the local punk band and he asks and he has dinner with them and he asks them what's going on in the place that they're in or what the meaning behind their lyrics are and then there's a really arty well you know high production performance of and what sort of places do you know can you remember any which places he goes he goes to uh, places in asia libya is one of the early (laughs) Uh, after after um, the uh, what do you call it a revolution in Libya Arab Spring yeah and he's he's there at Gaddafi's palace yeah rubble yeah that's, that's the sort of stuff I'd really enjoy do you watch Simon Reeve's documentary on I documentaries haven't. similar sort of thing only they right. tend to be a little bit more sort of focused on social and political issues but they're really 
Oh, he Brilliant. goes very political with things. Oh, it's a fucking amazing. Show. Oh, that's good. It's amazing. I think it's so. You'd like to do like you'd like to do something like that with it. I think so, or something like Idiot Abroad. I don't know. It just seems like a lark. I'd commission you, mate. Thank you. I'd, I'd I'd give it a punt. It just seems like a good way to make some money and not. Well, it's definitely not that. A good way of not going to co-op every day and still eating. You're grasping at straws now, mate. <laughs> you need more of a plan. Yeah, I know. Can't you steal food from that? Well, there's got to be another easier way. But you're going to give up the co-op, is that right? Should I, is this is this a big That's news right. in fruit? No, 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 it's not big. Well, it might be big news to some who like to come. What and are you going to do? I'm going to go. I'm going to be a learning support assistant. Great. In uh, in uh, maybe I shouldn't name the school. I'm not sure if I should. I'm no need sure. to. No need to. Uh, you made... additional needs and then and, and stuff like that. And uh, that's going to be a new interesting career thing. But yeah, no, I've always there's always been a part of me that's wanted to host a, a documentary TV thing. Um, and I'm thinking about it now. I'm thinking about it more. So I'm thinking about what's after the mayor. What's after being a town councillor? Yeah, the band is on on a break right yeah. now. Possibly to never return. So what what's what's the next thing? Oh, I think you should you should find a mate. Who, who's got uh, a little, you know, video camera, and and you can borrow this this uh, external that. recorder there, and go out and do it. Just go and you know save up some money, go off somewhere, and do exactly what you've envisaged yeah. for real, with uh, and just film it, and then come back and edit it up, and then just knock on some doors. Yeah, but this is the other thing. YouTube exists now. Yeah, you can. And just, if you've got the product, yes, stick yes. it on YouTube. Yes, exactly. Um, so no, it's, it's it's the like yeah the internet has done. Some weird things. I think you'd it? be really good at that. I think you'd be really watchable and interesting because you've got this sort of humility about you, and you've got the you've got an inquisitive nature, and you're a giant as well. So yes. you know you're gonna um, you're gonna be welcomed with open arms, not literally perhaps, but uh, people are gonna uh, you know you'll stick out and, and in a good way, and and people will be intrigued, and you'll find it easy to meet them like you do because you're quite extrovert. I think you'd be brilliant at it. Thank you. I'm not sure your taste in music is necessarily going to go down well in these obscure parts. Well, I've got a very broad sense of of, of um, what I like. It's not music. just punk rock, then. It's not just punk rock. No, no, I like loads of stuff. I listen to quite a lot of like outlaw country at the moment. What's that? Um, stuff like Jason Isbell, a bit of uh, Chris Stapleton, Tyler Childers. Jesus, do not know any of these people are? Oh, oh no, I... Well, I'll send you some stuff. I'm going to have to listen to this podcast and write it all down. They're all good. They're all very good. Um, yeah, and I like jazz. All kinds what of you shit. could do a musical based thing because not many. I mean, world music again. It's sort of my generation. It's kind of the whole idea of the other, of the foreign and the exotic has kind of broken down over the last thirty years since world music became a big thing. I've got a little real world collection going on as well. But now, you know, people are subject to influences from all over, aren't they? It's not, I mean, in those days, 30 years ago, there was sort of notions of, there was, there was a sort of, there were pure forms of traditional music that then became kind of cross-pollinated and diluted. And Well, that process of cross-pollination is now occurring. It was a big thing, wasn't there, in the 90s, I think, yeah. where, where a lot of the dance music was like, oh, let's take this hook from this yes. Arabic traditional instrument or something. Yes. Or let's take this, this, uh, this Mongolian throat singing and yeah. put a put a data like a 4-4 four, four club well, this pygmy singing and let's put some synthesizer beats underneath it and um you know deep forest style and i mean these things worked yeah. nowadays i don't think other cultures music is perceived in the same way but you know it's so evolving so fast music mm. that um I, I i never find it dull when i when i stumble upon something on tv or radio that where where someone is, is, is talking about a musical genre or a tradition in some bit of the world i don't know very well because it sort of gets under the skin of the place really 
like nothing else. You wouldn't do that. You well, could this go and... is the thing. What I was saying with Bourdain, the parts unknown. I think it's been done. I think the ultimate travel show. Not been done by you though. Not by me, but I think he did it. I think he, 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 you need to see some of this. It's just the way it's put together. Like, like you said, getting under the skin of the place. This is, he gets under the skin of the place. He gets but, in there. But I really like the idea of, of, of somebody doing it on a very low budget for real, like yeah. real traveling on really, you know, on a real shoestring, because that is not the case with Bourdain. He certainly would have had a Netflix budget to do it. You yeah. go off somewhere. Oh, he had CNN money. Well, there you go. Yeah. You know, that is going <laughs> to skew things. Why don't you just sort of go off and do something somewhere when this whole COVID business has sort of calmed down a bit and go and do something that follows your interests around and stick it on YouTube? I need what... a very eccentric, wealthy friend who just chucks a check at me and says, go, go and see how it comes out. What, the, I don't need this money back, but go and see how it happens. Just go and see what, what So the money's the issue, just the, being able to save money in order to get the free oh, time I can off. present it. I can find the, 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 the crew to do it. It's just the dosh. It'll just be the, it'll just be the dosh. It'll be, that'd be nice. That would be the ultimate thing, is if someone, here's 10 grand, yeah. um, go and make this product with yeah. some of your talented mates, yeah, yeah. of which I'm blessed to have many. And I don't need the money back, but try and get it back. Well, at the end of the day, that's that, 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 but that doesn't happen anymore. It's not like it used to be back in the day. Like, you know, you hear there's about crowdfunding. These, there, there is, but there's something, I don't know. I feel like coming out of COVID and everything, we're going to hit a financial crash. I feel like something, something like me going, hey, uh, everyone, I need you to put your hands in your pocket so I can no go way. off and go on a fucking no jolly. No, I, uh, no, <laughs> I don't think you, you I really don't look at it that way. I, I, um, well, listen to this funny story that might might encourage you to look at it differently, crowdfunding. I, um, so to sort of bring the story, my funny little career story up to date, yeah. after it had all unraveled and I ended up in the commercial sector doing pretty miserable bullshit writing, really. And I lost my job then in the COVID because all the countries that I wrote about were all in Asia and all the companies that I worked for were out of business, right. going out of business, or they certainly were all, you know, repaying deposits, not getting any bookings. That's still the case, by the way, in September 21, right. uh, August 21. So I lost my job last June, June 2020. And um, I don't know what the hell to do, you know. What was I going to do? Uh, I got the government self-employment support grant through and a bit of money from Mendip because I had a studio, enough to just keep me in uh, mushy peas. And... Uh, I thought, what am I going to do? So well, I did two things. One, I started going out more with my drone, taking pictures of ancient monuments, yeah. which is this weird hobby that I've been doing. But you're turning that into a... The second thing was I went and got a book deal. Uh, and book deals these days are rubbish, right? Because books don't earn money thanks to Amazon. The basic problem is that Amazon demands such huge discounts compared to booksellers in the past, mm. that there isn't the money there anymore coming to the publishers to afford to pay the authors more than a nominal amount of money. So the amount of money I got in advance was not enough for me to pay for me to do the job, which was to cover the rest of Britain. So at some point or another, when I was really running out of money, I, I set up a crowdfunding scheme, uh, on in, um, and I, which was driven by Instagram, because by this time I'd built up a bit of a following on Instagram. Yeah, you've got a good following on Instagram. How, how did you do that? Well, I think, you know, just 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 sticking at it, you know, it, it, it resonates with people what I do, because I take pictures of prehistoric sites, often in parts of the, you know, sort of around here, for example, that people don't even know they exist. Mm. When they see them from the air, and they realise what extraordinary places they are, it inspires them, makes them feel 
like a sense of connection with the past. So I think that has caused the snowball on Instagram. But I used my following on Instagram to direct people to this crowdfunder, and I was able to raise enough money to finish the book. Much I, I was able to raise considerably more than I've been paid in advance by my publisher. Right. And how much was that? Can I ask? Well, yeah, no, I think I raised over fifteen grand. What? Yeah, yeah, crowdfunding. Wow. Well, look. It, it, and there's it, no stipulation with that. They're like, have this, do what you need to do with it. If that's going to go towards no, no, I mean, mushy you know, peas or whatever, then do it. Like, no, no, I mean, it was really clear about what I was going to do with the money. Right. I mean, half of it, more than half, it's 60% of it spoken for, for fulfilment. So a huge chunk I have to uh, use to buy the books. That, ah, I should point out that that this that it was pinned to a pre-order thing, right? In order right. to capture sales, in order to get a decent amount of money from my book, mm. I became my own retailer in advance so that Amazon couldn't capture those sales. I got in there first. Right. Got 250 orders. And also people, so I couldn't take orders from abroad because the fulfillment's too expensive post. So people, yeah, a lot of people gave me money. I think more than 50 people gave me, made donations just as they wanted me to continue because they've been following me on Instagram. They wanted me to continue with my kind of journey because they, they were enjoying the feed. And I was saying, well, look, I, I literally can't carry on doing it. I can't get to Scotland. I haven't got the petrol money to get up there and back, you know. To, to continue work and by this time a lot of people have been following me for two years and they were really keen to help and um so yeah i raised 15 grand half more than half of it spoken for but the rest of it is all going to enable me to push my project forward and i've nearly done it now i've only got two more locations in britain to to photograph and what are they the orkney islands and uh, and then some of the parts of the uh, of Lewis and Harris, the Outer Hebrides. There is there is some really. Where's the Orkney Islands? Off the top right hand corner of Scotland. Okay. And the, the Hebrides, uh, Lewis and Harris, are off the top left hand corner. So you get, will you do those at the same time? No, I won't do them at the same time. See, the thing about my photography, it requires very particular weather conditions for it to work. Right. So I I use shadows very important in my work. If though, if you look on www davidabram.co.uk A-B-R-A-M that's my website you'll see these pictures really depend on you know they're all taken at sunrise sometimes sunset but mostly right. sunrise on cloudless days right so, so the light's really pretty and, and, it, and accentuates the, the contours of the sites and enables you to see the, the work that was done you know thousands of years ago in the earth so I can't you know you don't get the, <laughs> I've been waiting for six weeks yeah, five weeks for a decent spell of weather. Um, as soon as it comes, I'll get in my van. I, I got a van, so I got a van yeah. that goes, that I keep in now as part of this project. The crowdfunding enabled me to do that. So I drive, you know, up the M6 all night, pitch up somewhere in a remote bit of Scotland yeah. for sunrise, or I sleep there. It's often the case as well. I'll I'll go up, and if it's a long walk involved, two or three hours walk to, to one of these remote stone circles or burial sites... I'll sleep on it, right? And uh, I'll be there in, in 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 place when the sun comes up, and, it, and 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 often for sort of half an hour, you get this magical light. It all looks really beautiful. Put a drone in the sky, clearly click, and then I get in the van and drive home because you can only do it when the weather's nice. Yeah. So I've done four trips to the Highlands already this since 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 June. I've got another two left, and then it'll be done. Now, now crowdfunding's enabled me to do that, right? I'm sure a lot of people in Froome that follow your podcast would be willing to pitch, and I certainly would. You know, you don't have to ask for much money. You know, you can, you can, crowdfunding is great. You can give people all sorts of levels of options depending mm. on, you know, like you could offer, what what fun, you, you could offer a dinner with Andy or a, 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 an hour's chat with you, you see. Right. And, and uh, for 50 quid or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
Well, you never know. Big thank you to my guest this week, Damon Abram. We are going to leave links to all of his projects, Rough Guides and his drone photography, his Instagram, etc. in the show notes descriptions. If you could please leave a like, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be really, really great. That really, really helps us out. It's a great way to support this podcast about putting your hand in your pocket. If you want to follow The Giant Pod on social media, you can. It is at The Giant Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to follow me and everything I get up to in life, you can follow me on Instagram at Andy underscore TGP. This podcast was produced by the most travelled man I know, Harry Williams. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of season three. We love doing this and we hope that you guys love listening to it. We'll be back very soon with another episode. Thank you very much. Ciao. Bye. Catch you. Sayonara. <laughs>